I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth for Tuesday, February 15th, 2011. Coming up, an award-winning medical professor will share just how to help people love learning about science. Once you get a little bit good at teaching, it becomes addictive, and you teach everybody. And Helen knows. I mean, if I go to a restaurant, I start to explain the biochemistry of the food to the waiter. And, and we'll look at how the health of tiny powerhouses inside your cells may affect the risk of Parkinson's disease. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. BP's Deepwater Horizon disaster last year released not only nearly 5 million tons of crude oil into the Gulf of Mexico, it also spewed dangerous amounts of hydrocarbon gases, enough to potentially lead to oxygen depletion zones in the ocean. That's according to a new study led by Samantha Joy, a marine scientist at the University of Georgia. The authors found that BP's well emitted up to 500,000 tons of gaseous hydrocarbons, such as methane and pentane, into the deep ocean, with concentrations 75,000 times the norm. Gases, gases are normally not quantified for oil spills, but the researchers said that documenting the amount of hydrocarbon gases released by the well blowout is critical to understanding the long-term implications for the Gulf's microbial communities, the food chain, and more broadly, the deep ocean system. Professor Joy said the methane and other gases will probably remain deep in the ocean and be consumed by microbes. That process is called oxidation. On mass, it can remove oxygen from the marine system for a long time because it can take many decades to replenish oxygen at that depth. The study appears in the early online edition of the journal Nature Geoscience. Two recent genetic studies could pave the way for efficient production of cellulosic ethanol from switchgrass. Switchgrass is a promising candidate for biofuel production because it grows wild all over the U.S., including Colorado, and can be cultivated with minimal inputs from farmers. The trouble is figuring out how to break down the plant's tough fibers into simple carbohydrates like sugar, which can easily be converted into ethanol. One of those fibrous components is lignin. Researchers at the Samuel Roberts Noble Foundation, Oak Ridge National Laboratory, and the Georgia Institute of Technology teamed up to see if decreasing lignin could improve ethanol production. They turned off a lignin-producing gene in a common variety of switchgrass and measured how much ethanol was produced using typical fermentation methods. The modified plants grew normally despite having lower levels of lignin and produced up to 38% more ethanol than unmodified controls. These results are published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Another team of researchers, including scientists from half a dozen U.S. institutions, found new ways to break down cellulose by studying the bacteria in cows' stomachs. They fed the cows switchgrass, unmodified in this case, waited 72 hours, and then extracted it along with samples of the many bacteria cows rely on during digestion. Using gene sequencing techniques, the researchers were able to identify 15 complete genomes from species that convert cellulose into sugars. If these bacteria can be cultured, they could speed up the ethanol fermentation process considerably. That study was published in the journal Science. Yesterday was Valentine's Day, a perfect time for the Stardust Next spacecraft to have a 
cosmic hookup with Comet Temple-1. You may recall that Comet Temple-1 was the target of the Deep Impact mission, which smashed a probe into the comet in July 2005 and had only the briefest of times to observe its handiwork. Well, last night, another spacecraft, formerly used for the Stardust mission, had a one-night stand, or rather a a one-night flyby of Comet Temple-1, to get a second look at the comet, to get more images of the crater at the impact site, and to analyze how it has changed over the last almost six years. During that time, the comet has made one complete orbit around the sun, which may have changed the comet's appearance and surface properties of the impact site. The Stardust spacecraft came within 124 miles of Temple 1 at a speed of nearly 7 miles per second and was programmed to take dozens of high-resolution images of the comet. Those images are being eagerly analyzed as we speak, and we should hear preliminary results by next week's show. We all know about how our blood can give clues about our health and disease, but it turns out levels of some health markers aren't always evident just by looking in the blood. Inside a cell, some substances can be higher or lower. That's true, for instance, for calcium and for sugar, and even for something like uric acid. So scientists have been figuring out ways to check the amounts of these substances, not just in our blood, but inside our cells. And, as it turns out, the need to look closely doesn't stop there. And a new breakthrough about just how to look has been discovered by researchers at Emory University School of Medicine. Their discovery involves a disease made famous by the actor Michael J. Fox. It's Parkinson's, also known as the shaking disease. And the thing that's smaller than a cell itself which needs to be monitored, is a part of the cell known as the mitochondria. Mitochondria are often called the miniature power plants within our cells, but they do much more, according to Tsung Chiu Mao, a researcher at Emory University School of Medicine who's been studying how mitochondria are involved in Parkinson's. Mao says if mitochondria are sick, the entire cell can be sick. So if mitochondria misfunctions or it's just regulated. Uh, it sends out signals to the rest part of the cell and to tell the cell and it's under stress and may even execute self, cell death. So that's the one big role of mitochondria. And in addition to that, if mitochondria function is disrupted, it produces toxic signals to cell and stress cells, and we call it oxidative stress. In other words... If enough mitochondria are sick, not only does the cell lack energy, it can get signals that range from making the entire cell be stressed to directing the cell to kill itself. One protein that helps cells and mitochondria deal with the stress is called MEF2D. Many researchers have believed mitochondria health, along with the healthy levels of MEF2D, are involved in reducing the chance of Parkinson's disease. But there's been a puzzle because often people with Parkinson's seem to have adaptive, ad- adequate levels of MEF2D inside their cells. 
That's where Mao's team has made a breakthrough. They've figured out a way to measure levels of MEF2D inside the mitochondria. They've discovered that levels inside the mitochondria can be deficient even when MEF2D is abundant in other areas of the cell. Mao's team also has documented that certain pesticides and illegal drugs known to increase the risk of Parkinson's also reduce the level of MEF2D inside the mitochondria. So it's looking like MEF2D in the mitochondria is a strong signal related to the disease. Mao says that right now it's hard to measure all of this, but it is possible, and someday it might even be possible by taking a draw of blood. We, we did a very, not in this paper, but we did some unpublished work, and we showed that we could take a patient blood and isolate the white blood cell from patients, and then isolate mitochondria from those white blood cells, and then demonstrating that there is MEF2D in that PrEP. So we know we can do the experiment, but what's well, we have to, we only did a few cases, and we have to expand the numbers. Number one, number two, we have to make sense out of it. If we see a signal, what what the signal tells us, and how that signal level is related to the signal in the brain. So, so those are the work we need to to do. As for when this kind of blood test might be available for checking levels of MEF2D in the mitochondria, Mal says this. I have no idea. But uh, we are working on it very hard, and we, we first there are several hurdles, and uh, we we did a very very preliminary study, and as I mentioned to you earlier, that we can detect MEF2D in mitochondria isolated from white blood cells, so we know it's there, we can detect it. But then the, the hurdle next is to link its change to specific pathological situations, and that's a much harder task, I think. It's a harder task to do, but if Mao and his team succeed, they might also unlock some clues about how other mitochondrial disorders observed in other neurodegenerative diseases and heart disease also might be linked to MEF2D. The Emory research about Parkinson's and mitochondria is published online this week in the Journal of Clinical Investigation. It's been said that while everyone loves learning something new, people don't always like being taught. A medical professor from Colorado is working to change that in his lectures to medical students, in community outreach, and even with scientists who are terrified to teach. From Denver, How on Earth Shelley Schlender reports. John Cohen still remembers his very first lecture 30 years ago. I can do a full-body cringe by re remembering what it was like that first day when my slides didn't work and I talked too fast and nobody knew what I was talking about and my knees were knocking. I mean, it was, it was awful. That's not the case today. Okay, good morning, everybody. The lecture hall at the University of Colorado School of Medicine is filled with nervous medical students facing the challenging topic known as immunology. Today we're going to talk about antibody function. John Cohen has been a professor of immunology for nearly 40 years, and his lectures are anything but awful. 
Dr. Cohen is incredibly enthusiastic in his lectures, very knowledgeable, very entertaining for a student. Uh, he has just very, really enjoys his lectures. He's one of the best lecturers I've ever heard. <laughs> you know, you just can't help but usually pay attention. <laughs> you can imagine that if conditions are right, you might start to build up chains of these things. Today, after explaining in precise scientific detail how tiny protein molecules called antibodies link with invading proteins called antigens to form immune complex chains, Cohen offers an explanation that's a bit easier to visualize. And I made a drawing earlier because I had nothing to do. And if you look at the top, so let's imagine... He's drawn a different kind of chain stick figure boys and girls, all holding hands. Imagine, let's imagine this class has 160 people, and I think it's true, they're about half boys and half girls. So if we tell everyone Cohen says this approach not only helps his students understand immunology, it allows them to enjoy learning about it. He thanks that first awful lecture for his teaching success today. What I did figure out was I've got two choices now, like everyone else. I can go on saying, oh my God, that was awful. I'm going to do as little teaching as I possibly can because I'm no good at it and I hate it and they hate me. Or I'm going to become better at it. He got so much better, he's received nearly 30 Excellence in Teaching Awards from the School of Medicine. In 1989, Cohen began a free series of lectures for the community about the science of medicine. He admits that he expected this mini-med school to attract maybe two dozen people. And uh, to our enormous surprise, it was incredibly successful. More than 17,000 people have attended Minimed over the past 20 years, and it has inspired similar programs in more than 80 schools and hospitals around the world. Helen McFarlane, who manages Minimed, says its down-to-earth explanations empower people to expect the same from their doctors. If there's a something going on with your own health, you can say, wait, I don't quite understand this. Explain to me what this word means, and then I'll get through an understanding of what's happening. Cohen organizes another innovative teaching gig called Café Scientifique. Every month, it packs a Denver brew pub with more than 100 people, eager to hear a local scientist discuss cutting-edge research. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is J.J. Cohen. I'm, I am known officially as the disorganizer of the cafe. Cohen is a big fan of these informal discussions about science, which began in 1998 in England. His Denver Cafe Sci is one of the longest-running and most popular in the U.S. Presenters include researchers, professors, and clinicians, although tonight's speaker, physiologist Inigo Sanmian admits his usual audience is other scientists. And uh, I feel like a little bit like naked. <laughs> I'm, used to, <laughs> I'm used to my PowerPoint presentation, my pictures, slides, graphs, etc., etc., my pointer, and now here I am, about nothing, you know. So I, uh, please uh, excuse me in advance if I, you know, feel a little lost, which I am. <laughs> but after his half-hour talk about exercise and human performance... Thank you. Thank you. A big round of applause has him grinning from ear to ear. John Cohen says that most of the scientists and clinicians who speak at Cafe Sci find a receptive audience and realize that giving a talk is not that scary. I have lots of clinical colleagues who, you know, take care of patients, and I've never heard any of them say to me, oh, I'm a terrible doctor, you know, I kill half my patients. Nobody says that, nobody feels that. 
I'm, my research colleagues never say, oh, I'm a terrible researcher, my experiments are stupid and half of them don't work. Nobody says that. They take great pride in their work. But it's amazing how many people say, oh, I'm a terrible teacher and I do anything to get out of it because it's just a waste of time for me. Cohen says the more someone gets into teaching, the more fun they have. Once you get a little bit good at teaching, it becomes addictive. And you teach everybody, and Helen knows, I mean, if I go to a restaurant, I start to explain the biochemistry of the food to the waiter. So Cohen is developing a cafe pedagogique, where students and teachers together can brainstorm even better ways to teach. I'm Shelley Schlender in Denver. Thanks to Shelley for that report. You can find out more about the local Café Scientifiques by googling Colorado Café Sci. For more information about CU Denver's Mini-Med School, Google CU Denver Mini-Med. And congratulations to Professor John Cohen. He'll be in Washington, D.C. this weekend. That's when the American Association for the Advancement of Science will present Dr. Cohen with its top award for promoting public understanding of science and technology. And last but not least, let's hear from BBC Science in Action on decisions about future European Space Agency missions. It's probably the biggest decision European space scientists have faced in almost two decades, and it's going to cost them, or rather European taxpayers, well in excess of a billion euros. They have to choose a big space mission, a mission that will do something extraordinary, both scientifically and technologically. But what exactly will this mission be? Well, BBC science correspondent Jonathan Amos has just come back from Paris, where the European Space Agency, or ESA, has been deciding which missions to choose. And he joins us now. So, John, they've managed to narrow it down to a final three. Yes, John, we're in the final stages of quite a complex competition. Three different groups of scientists trying to convince the community that their big idea is the one to go forward with. I say complex because not only is it a lot of money but the money is so great that it needs the involvement of other space agencies like NASA. We'll have a chat about the the three different missions. The first one up is something called LISA, which is the Laser Interferometer Space Antenna. It's going to try to detect gravitational waves. These are the the ripples in the fabric of space-time that occur every time some massive body moves, a colliding black hole, uh, an exploding star. Bernie Schutz is one of the team members behind this one. The gravitational waves we want to detect are from the most extreme objects that the universe has been able to produce, the giant black holes that we now know are out there. And gravitational waves, if we receive them here and measure them, then we know what's happening to those black holes far away. And the most remarkable thing is that some of those occur very early in the history of the universe and therefore very far away. So, John, how would this detector work? Is it something that would be put into orbit? Yes, it's, it's probably the biggest thing we would ever put into space because it's three satellites, they're five million kilometres apart, but you have to do that to try and pick up this tiny, tiny signal uh, that they're trying to detect. I'll give you an idea here. In order to detect a gravitational wave in space, they're looking for a deviation in the length of that five million kilometre laser beam of 
just fractions of the width of an atom. Quite extraordinary. Not only would they be able to probe black holes, but they'd be able to see the gravitational waves from, well, the moment of creation itself, the Big Bang. Uh, another mission that I quite like uh, is also called uh, uh, the International X-ray Observatory. It's going to go after black holes as well. It's going to look for some of these very early black holes to form in the universe, the big ones that sort of came together to form even bigger black holes. But as Paul Nander explained to me, they're also going to look at the structure of the universe with this telescope. We've learned that X-ray observations can map out the structure of the universe. We may think that a lot of the universe is filled by dark matter, but this dark matter is all traced out by visible matter in hot gas tracing out filaments in the universe. That hot gas, though, is so hot, you can only see it in X-rays. You can't see it in optical light or infrared light or with a normal telescope that's on the ground. That's why we have to go into space. We have to launch a space telescope that's sensitive to the X-rays, and then we can actually see how the dark matter is distributed through the universe by looking at this visible matter. And the thing about this telescope, John, is that it really is huge. Just listen to what Paul has to say about its scale. It's 20 metres in length. It's the biggest X-ray telescope that we hope that we'll see, and it certainly dwarfs the current missions. Once we get into orbit, we extend it out in order to make it into a telescope. So we sort of package it up like a concertina and then we extend it out in order to make it work properly. So both those missions sound enormous in scale and they're looking at some of the very basic questions about our universe, some of the sort of intangible aspects, if you like. Are there any more traditional space missions that have got through to this final three? Yes, there's a, a planetary mission. This would go to the Jupiter system. It would go with two spacecraft, one from the Americans and one from Europe. And as well as concentrating on the gas giant itself, they would try and go into orbit around two of the important Galilean moons. So this is Europa and the other one is Ganymede. Why are these two important? Well, because we think they have subsurface oceans and where we have liquid water, there's always a chance we might be able to find life. Michelle Doherty told me about this mission. What Galileo did is it allowed us to begin to understand what the interiors of the Galilean moons are like. To be able to understand them properly, you need to go into orbit. So we know at Europa that there is an ocean. We don't know how deep it is. At Ganymede, Ganymede is complicated because it's got its own internal field and an induced field coming from what we think is an ocean. But to be able to understand it best, we need to go into orbit. Thanks to John Stewart of BBC's Science in Action for that report. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Today's show was produced with the help of Ted Burnham. Tim Morton wrote our theme music. Tom Wassinger produced it. Additional music from Amira and Marima Kaluso. Our website is howonearthradio.org. We're also on Facebook. Just search for How on Earth Radio. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Joel Parker. This program is supported by you, the KGNU listener member. 
and by independent power systems located in North Boulder and serving the entire Front Range. They offer end-to-end -end solar electric system design and installation for your home, business, or commercial building project. Independent power systems can be reached by phone at 303-443-0115 or online at solarips.com.